Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Joachim Schnackenberg. Dr. Schnackenberg is a consultant for hearing voices and recovery in Germany and a researcher, supervisor and trainer in experience-focused counselling with voice hearers. Joachim, good morning. Good morning. So, thanks for being here. Um, perhaps you can get the ball rolling by explaining what's meant by hearing voices in this context. Okay, so hearing voices um, in the context that I primarily um, encounter it is within uh, mental health settings and it is um, an experience where people uh, hear voices or uh, hear sounds we will often, we, we can extend that same thing to also maybe seeing visions or noticing presences, etc. without um, other people being able to notice or see the same thing. And uh, classically within psychiatry, this would often get classed in a pathologizing way as hallucinations uh, within the approach that I and my colleagues use. Um, we don't use a very pathologizing way of looking at it. We just look at it as a very normal human experience that needs to be worked with and understood. Okay, and just also let us know, how did you become drawn to be involved in this kind of work specifically? It's a good question. I don't quite have an answer to that yet. I've obviously been asked that question quite a few times. Um, maybe the answer is one, I mean, originally, encountered this approach in, two th in the year 2000. I went to a workshop on hearing voices which was run by a voice hearer himself called Ron Coleman. Uh, Ron Coleman was someone who'd been in and out of the psychiatric system and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and had been told that he wouldn't recover but he did find a way of recovering. And the way he did that was by um, very proactively and constructively find a way of working with his voices so that he could co-live with them rather than work or live against them. And in terms of what attracted me to it, it was probably um, the sense that this was an experience that made sense ultimately that one could work with and that probably touched upon something very deep inside of me that was quite clear on the fact that um, yeah, ultimately everything is there for a purpose rather than um, being an expression of something faulty or pathologized or yeah something like that okay so there's two kind of strands there there's the particular form of the, the hearing voices which you're saying can also extend to um, visual and uh, impressions of people being in the room that other people aren't aware of and then there's the other strand of um, how do you go about interacting with that? Do you pathologize it or see it as a normal part of human experience? Um, yes. One, one like question that this brings up for me, okay, is, is how we, prior to getting onto whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or how we interact with it, is to where this, um, this sense of the voices comes from and how different cultures at different times would have interpreted these things differently. And even in our own culture now, there's wide interpretation. So um, I think predominantly we would pathologize this kind of thing in our culture now and say it's, it's something to do with a breakdown in the brain that's leading to delusions that it would be best if we could get rid of them. 
okay yeah. but if you were in say um a tribal culture going back perhaps thousands of years uh hearing voices could be seen as some part of like a shamanic thing or a, a communication of spirits and that carries over into our modern world because there are people of course who believe that they are interacting with uh, the deceased um but it doesn't stop there okay there's people who believe they're having communication with um aliens or creatures like fairies or something and the voices could be coming from there or you could have technological explanations like it's part of some government program projecting voices so it seems like there's a wide variety of interpretations could be given to a relatively similar experience. Do you, do you think that's an accurate appraisal? Yeah, no, that's absolutely accurate. Absolutely, yes. And I'm assuming in your work you encounter people who are all over that spectrum in terms of interpretation. Yes, yes, and 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 even more varied. Yeah, um, often though you would find common themes um, like um, maybe. Um, uh, espionage services like the CIA or um, something similar being involved um, or aliens, um, lots of spiritual explanations, um, particularly involving spirits, um, lots of technical explanations, but also lots of biological explanations um, such as, you know, my brain is um, not working properly, that kind of thing. So yeah, lots and lots of different explanations used by uh, people who have these experiences themselves. And do you find that people do better or worse depending on the explanation they, they give? So if people believe it's spirits rather than a biological breakdown, or if people believe it's angels rather than demons, say, is there a more or less healthy interpretation? Um, there's, in my practice, in, in mental health settings, there's, there's maybe a slight uh, variation. Although I would say um, that in, in terms of the impact, although I would say that ultimately it doesn't really seem to matter quite as much how one explains it. That makes the difference about how, how difficult the experience can be for people or how rewarding the experience can be for people. It seems to be more about how people relate to this experience that makes the difference rather than what kind of explanation is being used. But it's probably true that um, people who have a um, more spiritual explanation, such as maybe angels, spirits, um, something similar like that, such, something that allows for a degree of um, um, doing something oneself about it, such as you know, within spiritual explanations, it's accepted that one can uh, change one's own behavior in order to maybe appease the spirits or in order to maybe follow the advice of the angels, that kind of stuff. So if one has the feeling that one can do something oneself about it and, and how to, how to um, uh, relate or control the, relate to or control the experience, then it doesn't normally seem to get quite as distressing for people. Whereas with an explanation like, um, you know, it's biology, it's too much dopamine or it's uh, 40 genes that can often feel very, um, very passive for people. And because it's very passive, it can make them feel even more powerless and therefore maybe even more distressed. But it is also true that um, people who've got spiritual experiences can be just as distressed by the experience as people with biological explanations. As I said, my, my experience and upwards within our approach that we use um, 
we say that the key isn't so much the correct ex um, explanation, but the way that one relates to uh, these experiences. Okay, so let's move on to that in just a second of the approach and how people relate to it. Um, I'm also I'm curious though because it, it strikes me as counterintuitive that um, it wouldn't be so relevant where the experience is coming from um, unless they're all really coming from the same place. Okay, so if there's an interpretation that this is like a, a CIA mind control program that you've fallen victim of, um, that would seem to be just out and out more negative than speaking to your deceased loved ones, say. So yeah. I'm just making that observation that there's something counterintuitive in, in what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be on the surface, but I'm just saying that, um, um, I mean, you might be in touch with a very um, vengeful um, deceased relative. Sure. Uh, mind would so so it very much depends on the nature you know i have lots of people who um say it's the cia and actually they feel it's a very positive experience right right yeah so again it very much depends on the actual nature of what what they're experiencing with the cia deceased um, relatives whatever it may be and how they then relate to it yeah i suppose i'm letting my own prejudices about the cia creep into the conversation there and imposing that on people's interpretation <laughs> Yeah. Um, but so to move on then to, um, you're saying there's a, irrespective of interpretation, there's a common thread in how you engage. So would you describe that if someone's coming to you for um, counselling around this, what, what does the process of engagement look like? Well, if, if they're very happy to start engaging, I mean, first of all, lots of people are quite reluctant to engage in, in, in trying to understand this experience a lot more. Not everyone, but plenty of people have got lots of reservations about it um, because the kind of people that I see, at least within my context, um, they will often be quite distressed by their experience and they just want rid of it. So um, it seems counterintuitive to them to start trying to engage in the experience and trying to understand it more. And our approach suggests just that, that it might be important to try and engage in the experience and try and understand it more in order to find a way of learning how to deal with and cope with it in a better way and maybe understand it in a better way, better way than thus far. So, sorry, go on. So can you give an example of what that would look like um, if someone is, uh, say, experiencing voices that are distressing and they want to get rid of it, they come to you, and do you start a process then of listening to the voice, of engaging with the message it's, yeah. it's um, putting across? Yes, essentially, yes. Um, so um, within this approach, um, maybe I'll briefly say why, why I say this approach, because this approach is very different still to what generally happens within the mainstream of psychiatric services. Within the mainstream, up to very recently, the um, predominant paradigm had been one of saying, don't listen to the voices, don't try and engage with them, don't try and understand them. Because they're an expression of pathology, biological pathology, and there's nothing to be understood. By trying to engage with them, we'd likely make it worse. That's been the dominant paradigm. It's a paradigm that's been based on, on no scientific um, investigation, that, you know, thinking that it would make, us, make it worse, that's never been scientifically investigated and in fact uh, more recently in recent decades there's been an increasing number of different approaches that have developed that are proposing to do just that namely to engage with the voices to varying degrees but at least to to engage with the voices up to a point 
And within mental health settings, um, the approach that I and my colleagues stand for, the experience-focused counselling uh, with voices or voice hearers, from what I can see, is probably the approach that goes um, the furthest in trying to engage with voices. Um, there's, it's, it's very much and firmly rooted in a non-pathologizing and normalizing context. So uh, we would be explain, I would be explaining this um, to a person that comes for support, that um, for us it's all about understanding and finding a better way of um, uh, working with the voices. We wouldn't be trying to convince the person that this is non-pathology. We'd be trying to work with whatever the person says it is. So if they're saying it's the CIA, CIA or they're saying it's biology, I would work with that. I wouldn't say it's not biology or it's not CIA. I would just accept that and leave it, leave, leave that explanation to be. I wouldn't try and, I'd try and understand it a bit, but I wouldn't try and um, question that in any way. So, um, and then, yeah, we would start a process of systematically trying to understand the voice hearing experience within the person's life context. So that would include, we, one of the main tools that we use is called the Maastricht interview, because this approach was first developed in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And the Maastricht interview is essentially like a, um, a semi-structured semi um, interview that supports um, a dialogue between the voice hearer and um, the person accompanying them about the experience of hearing voices. So it'll ask something about, um, you know, how many voices do you hear? What is it like for you to hear the voices? Do you know when it started? What was happening for yourself around that time in your life? At what points in your life um, do you normally hear the voices more during the day now, you know? Not just historically, but you know, today during the day, when is when is it more likely that you hear them? When you're alone, when you're with other people, when you're afraid, when you're happy, that kind of thing. Um, we would also be asking about the contents of the voice. What do they talk about? And is it re and did, does the person feel it's relevant to them? Then how they explain it to them, to themselves? What's the impact of the voice hearing experience? How do they? manage to relate to the voices and how do they cope with them. And we would also ask about um, uh, childhood and general life experiences. You know, what, what was childhood like? Was it, um, you know, were there lots of positive experiences associated with it, lots of difficult experiences? And what's been your experience of um, support thus far or treatment thus far and has, has it been helpful? So those are the kind of main elements that we'd be exploring. And what kind of shift do you see in a person uh, when they go through this process? Do you have people for whom the voices stop or does the nature of the voice transform from a, a negative thing to a positive thing? Yeah, both, both normally. It does very much depend ultimately on how, um, how much the person feels able to really look at these things. Um, instinctively, it seems that a lot of voice areas that we see not maybe people who are outside of the psychiatric system so much, but people who we see in the psychiatric system are often very afraid of voices. So to, I would say to the same degree that they find a way of um, looking at this voice hearing experience with less fear, to the same degree can the voices also uh, transform in the experience. So that might express itself by the voices themselves changing or 
from, from negative to neutral or positive, or the person understands that even though the voices haven't changed, actually the intent wasn't as negative as they thought it was. Or, you know, once they've maybe changed something that the voices have pointed at, you know, the voices may have been saying, we're here to support you in standing up for yourself. And if the person has learned to stand up for themselves, they might disappear. So that might well be um, mm -hmm. something that could happen. And it does happen quite regularly. It's, it's hard for me to imagine um, when I hear about like very malevolent voices, okay, um, how that could shift into something positive. Could you yeah. give an example of that, what that transformation might look like? Yeah. So I find, I find when I try and make the point about malevolent turning into benevolent, I find for myself it's often best maybe explained by um, yeah, explaining something that's called uh, voice dialogue or talking with voices, which is based on voice dialogue. Um, so one of the methods that we have available to us is also to talk um, directly as um, supporting people to the voices that people hear. And we can do that directly or indirectly. So I can't hear the voice that people hear, but the voice hearer can translate for me uh, what the voice says and I can maybe um, ask questions to the voice. And the voice era, of course, already, oft, uh, we, we will have tried to support the voice era in, in, in starting to talk to the voices anyway. Um, because, you know, it's, it's always, one always gets, gets along much better with people that one talks to than people that one doesn't talk to. So by a process of learning to talk to the voices, um, we might understand that um, a voice that's been saying, you know, go and kill yourself, you fucking ugly bitch, as an example, that might not be an unusual, unusual thing. Mm -hmm. Don't kill yourself, you fucking ugly bitch, because you're fucking ugly and the world doesn't want you. Rather than just being really indignant or really afraid by such use of language, which might be a natural gut reaction to have, um, we would encourage to try and ask, you know, what? Why is it, why are you saying go and kill yourself? What is it, what is it about killing, um, killing herself that would make it better for that voice hearer? And the voice would say, well, you know, the world would be better off without her because she's a fucking waste of space, for example. And then we, again, rather than just retreating again, we would ask, so in which way would it be better? In which way would the world be better off? Well, then we wouldn't have to look at, you know, all of her wasteful um, ways of living her life. So you already have a little bit of a, an explanation there. And again, you know, gut reaction would be said to probably be quite indignant at, at how rude and absolutely downputting this voice is. Again, we continue to ask and we, we ask, you know, so when you say, you know, she's, she's a wasteful um, piece of shit that's not living her life, what do you mean by it? You know. Are you saying that she, you feel she's not living her life properly? And then the voice would say, yeah, she's not living her life properly. And what would, you know, if she could live her life in, the, in a better way that you think is better, what would she be, what would she be doing? And the voice might say, well, she, you know, she wouldn't let people walk all over her, for example. She wouldn't treat herself as a piece of shit. And so you already notice a turn in how um, one can maybe understand the reasoning. And then you can even ask further, you know, what would be better for this voice hearer 
if she was dead? And the voice would say something like, um, you know, then at least the world wouldn't have to put up with her anymore. And in which way would that be better for the, for the person? Well, then she wouldn't get so much stick anymore from people around her. So what you're saying, voice, is that you don't want her to get so much stick. And then the voice will often, a bit reluctantly, because it's been found out, but it would say, yeah, it doesn't want, you know, doesn't want the person to get as much stick. So you can see, just by asking in, a, in as fearless a way as possible, how a very seemingly malevolent voice can turn into something positive. Essentially, this voice wants a good life for that person. And if we then ask the voice, so if the person, this voice here, managed to live their lives in a way where they do stand up for themselves, where um, they live their lives properly, and really go for it, would they still have to kill themselves? And then the voice will normally relent and say, no, they wouldn't. So that might also log on to um, the basic insight that I, for myself, have gained over the years, and I've been doing this work now for nearly 18 years, um, that it does appear that there isn't a voice that's in itself inherently malevolent. It is our relationship to them that makes them seem malevolent. If we don't ask, if we don't really inquire, then we can't find out that they may actually be benevolent as well. Or if we feel they're still malevolent, we could still use them in such a way that we might use them for our advantage. If we feel they're resembling bullies that we experienced, um, sorry, uh, yeah, um, sorry, bullied, bullying, that's the English term, isn't it? I'm just yeah. trying to think yes. that, sorry, I'm confused. Um, so if, we've, if um, the voice might resemble a bully, we could still use the voice um, in order to try and practice standing up to bullies, even if, you know, even if there's nothing inherently good about being bullied, of course, we can still use the voice to practice standing up to them. Does that make sense? Or yeah, that, I... that's a fascinating um, talk through of how that malevolent um, energy entity transforms. I think it's very, very clear. Um, and it, what it just brings up in me is they want to ask the question that your, this approach you're talking about seems diametrically opposed to something like exorcism um, or the idea of casting the voice out. Now you could say exorcism in the, the Christian sense of casting out demons, I suppose also in the psychiatric sense of wanting to ignore and get rid of. Yeah. So your, your approach seems to be one of like, I could describe as one of oneness, one of integration as opposed to yeah. one of duality and cutting away. Yeah. At the same time, I've listened to, I don't know how many interviews of people who have experienced what they perceived as an attack by malevolent entities, um, mm -hmm. demonic entities, sometimes starting out that they would perceive that, telling the opposite story in some ways, say that they would be encounter what they perceived were benevolent spirit guides who then became malevolent and they underwent an exorcism process or they called upon Jesus to get rid of this problem. Now, perhaps um, in different cultures, there's different ways of doing this. Um, but what, we, what I tend to see in our culture is people going into quite a Christian form of engaging with it that way. And people also reporting um, positive results from doing this, that it helped, that it, it helped them return to stability. So I know you have experience of 
looking at this kind of approach too. And how do you see that contrast? Or and do you perceive there's um, positives to it? And if so, why would that be in light of what you're saying? Yeah. So my, I would say my um, exposure to ex to classic forms of exorcism has been quite limited. I mean, I've spoken to people who um, who uh, perform ex um, exorcism rites, uh, for example, for the Anglican Church, and I've um, attended a workshop on it. Um, but um, yes, and I've also, I'm, I also have some knowledge of um, the fact that within, uh, often within uh, evangelical churches within um, the UK, for example, that might be something that might be looked at favorably to try and um, exercise uh, demons. Now, if it works, I would say if it works, great. If it genuinely works, great. And um, yes, that would appear to be diametrically opposed, but I would say if it works for the person, that's fine. I would say they probably also will have missed an opportunity to learn from um, the seeming malevolence of the voice and why, why it had any power in inverted commas in their lives in the first place. That's an opportunity missed. But if it does work, that's great. And I imagine there's a process of some form of uh, um, really uh, refocusing oneself of, on, onto one's own power and energies in that process that, that's very helpful, even if, if one says it's with the help of Jesus or, um, or someone else. Um, I know that people can feel very powerful when they feel supported by Jesus and feel that they can face anything, of course. And that, I imagine that um, a process of exorcism might also facilitate a process of really accepting uh, one's own uh, difficulty that one has in the area where this particular spirit has um, got power. And what I would say is what I think un is underlying any transformative process that I've seen is um, appears to be a process of acceptance. So when we can find a way of accepting whatever difficulty we have in a particular area of life, the power seems to um, decease that, that this um, area has got over me. So if I've always been, um, if I've always been uh, dealing with, um, with my own need to stand up for myself in a fearful way, as in I've never dared to stand up for myself, um, enough kind of shied away from it, then then other things will continue to have power over me. Whereas maybe if even with the help of exorcism, I try and really face something and really look onto it, I would I would argue that that that's a, that also facilitates a process of acceptance that I've got an issue there, and whatever I accept, no longer has any any real power over me and can't really over, over, overcome me anymore in my experience. I cannot speak for any sorts of, uh, for, for all sorts of exorcism, of course, um, to be able to say that that's the process that, the process that goes on. My experience um, in that is limited, of course, and I cannot speak for every experience that anyone might have anywhere and say this is always the same process. I can only speak of my own experience of what I've seen, of course, in, in, this, in this context. Um, yeah, but I imagine a process of acceptance may well be happening. Sure, yeah, and it occurred to me, of course, that um, in the evangelical act of accepting Jesus um, as an approach to dealing with this kind of thing, it's also the starting point of a spiritual path for someone if they come into that way of, of yes. um, looking at the problem. They're then going to go on a big journey of becoming Christian, say, which yes. involves all sorts of transformation. So, um, in all these things, it's difficult to really 
pinpoint sometimes what's having the when people say they've transformed over a 10-year period it's i mean if you look at my own life and say okay if i've gone through various psychological shifts in perception it can be hard for me to say what exactly was that there can be th- factors that i'm not um including or thinking of or aware that also that had a big shift so yeah um i'd also like to ask you what the implications of this approach you're working with has for mental suffering outside of voice hearing directly because you you've put a a sort of ring fence of your work around hearing voices apparitions um of, of other natures but it seems like this should be then applicable to other conditions entirely let's say anorexia to pick one or body dysmorphia mm-hmm. or obsessive compulsive disorder in a lot of these um areas the the psychiatric advice might be to get away from to push out okay and um, would you see a similar process of integration as being applicable do you see your work as being in a maybe slightly different form because you're not interacting with a voice um, but do you see it as being applicable to different areas in mental health yeah i do ultimately what i haven't emphasized too much yet is that um I mean, I'll go back briefly to voice hearing to, to get the um, connection to what you're asking. I mean, both in terms of my own experience, but also in terms of the research um, um, knowledge that we have today, it is quite clear that experiences like voice hearing, at least the ones that we see within mental health settings, often appear to be strongly connected to um, uh, very difficult life experiences in people's um, lives. That's not to say that these are psychological expressions of them. It may be helpful to look at them that that way, but it's not to say that we therefore know these are all just psychological expressions. Within our approach, as I said, we would work with whatever explanation a person has. But, um, yeah, so we we see that a lot of people that we see have been not just a little bit traumatised, but I'm not saying people with small traumatization, small in, in inverted commas, are not allowed to get voices, of course. But a lot of the people that we see have been very, very badly traumatized in their lives. Um, a lot more so than, um, than, 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 than is often uh, considered both in mainstream media, but also within mainstream uh, mental health services. So very, very badly traumatized people with um, oft, often very difficult um, childhood and or uh, life related experiences and these experiences will often express uh, strong experiences of powerlessness and helplessness and of uh, being treated in a way that made them feel very very small and yeah and very often very abused too so um, I was speaking to um, a uh, survivor of you know difficult experiences like that and a very well-known voice hearing uh, she's very well known within the hearing voices movement which also exists um, and we were talking about um, you know things like um, different forms of mental health suffering such as OCD or other forms and her words very much uh, reflected what I've heard about these things too that 
from from my experience of working within um, mental health settings now for as I said nearly 18 years as a qualified uh, mental health professional um, I feel they're all just different forms of trying to cope with very different uh, very difficult life experiences so OCD, BDD, um, uh, anorexia, uh, depression etc in my experience they appear to be um, reactions to very difficult life experiences and just that person's particular way of trying to deal with and cope with it and or you know voice hearing again a reaction to very overpowering and difficult life experiences often appears to be their own way of trying to really master and and ascend these difficult life experiences and in that way i would say shouldn't be pathologized in the first place but should be recognized for what they are namely that person's best attempt thus far to try and make sense of it all and to try and somehow manage that they may be able to improve on that um, in a way that makes you know that makes it feel less overwhelming and less dominating in their lives like in BDD or you know with distressing voices you know that's of course something that can be done but it doesn't I wouldn't say you know calling these things pathologies has no scientific basis from where I'm standing absolutely not and it's not something that I'm just saying that's something that's actually being debated within the, um, the scientific discourse at the moment for example there was a very uh, it's a very um, document that came out recently called the power threat meaning framework which was um, uh, which is a position paper which was brought out by the British Psychological Society talking about how mental health difficulties are best understood as reactions to difficult life events so uh, rather than um, something that should be pathologized and therefore attempted to be suppressed or got rid of Okay, so in a similar way to the example you gave with the malevolent voice then, you could see something as like anorexia as being obviously deeply malevolent on the surface, but something that also perhaps has a positive intent if it's engaged with in a similar process. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even go as, yeah, on the surface, maybe just in, in the person's own experience. I mean, from where I'm standing, I, I don't really look at it as malevolent anymore. It's in the same way as voices, there's, there's nothing left in me now that makes me think that's malevolent. Um, it used to, you know, I, I, I wasn't already a converted person before I started working with this. You know, I wasn't looking at these things in that way. Over time, um, I've just realized that it seems that these things really are malevolent. So. In anorexia, for example, you know, it's an attempt to try and regain control, it seems. Hello, this is just a quick post-interview edit. Joachim has asked me to point out that he used the wrong word a moment ago when he referred to the voices as malevolent. He meant to say benevolent. Okay, back to the interview. And very often, um, in circumstances which very often feel very out of control for the person. That's, I mean, that's not the only reason why people might develop anorexia, but it's one that often appears to be yeah. relevant. Similar for BDD or OCD. Okay, thank you very much for all that, Joachim. Um, to finish, I'd like to just ask you about the um, Hearing Voices community you mentioned. Yeah. I know that's something you're involved with. It's the group of people who have rejected the pathology, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to know about that and anything else you feel you'd like to say that I might have missed, please go ahead. 
So, um, yeah, it might be helpful to know that a lot of these kind of insights and understandings I've talked about in how to talk with voices or how to engage with them and understand them. You know, this is now um, a little summary of some of the things I've understood over the years. And um, a lot of these insights have come with a lot of experience and with a lot of training that I've got. And I wouldn't want to discourage people from engaging with their voices. I'd want to do quite the opposite. But if it doesn't work straight away, they may find it helpful to um, get some further training and or guidance on how to engage with um, voices in a more helpful way, rather than just um, going in in a very uh, blind way and, and finding it potentially a difficult experience. It doesn't have to become a difficult experience, but it may not work quite as smoothly as I've described it straight away. And a lot of these, the example I gave about the voice dialogue, it may be important to know that this normally comes after a process of um, some prolonged engagement of constructive working with um, the voice hearer and, and their voices. It doesn't normally happen straight away at the beginning of the first meeting of the, with the voice hearer. Okay, so the hearing voices movement is something that I've been part of ever since um, in, 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 in lesser and greater degrees over the years, but um, yeah, ever since I've come across this approach in, in June 2000. Um, it's a um, movement that's particularly prepared, not exclusively, but particularly um, prepared by uh, voice hearers themselves. And this is a combination of both uh, people who have heard voices and never had problems with them, but the vast majority of very active people within this movement are probably people who used to really struggle with their voices, including having um, had mental health difficulties. And they found a way of learning to um, not just cope with them. In some cases, that's maybe what people, some people have managed, but a lot of people have really thrived with the help of their voices as well. And there's lots of very strong political and social initiatives that have been both supported and come out of the hearing voices movement. And it's a movement that considers itself to be particularly a human rights movement. It's all about saying, it's not about that we should find a way of curing voices. It's about saying, let's emancipate voice hearers. Let's, let's find a way how hearing voices can become such a normal thing that we can just talk with mates about it in the pub over, over a pint of beer, rather than just saying this is something that's um, incredibly awful. And if we remember that, um, you know, from our point of view, the um, issue isn't so much whether a person hears voices, but how they relate to them. If we as a society had decided that it was an accepted um, phenomenon, that's an acceptable experience, we would automatically find less um, difficult ways of relating to them, to these things. That, it could still be overwhelming at times, but we'd find, have much more compassionate and and community-based ways of relating to the solo experience. And there's lots of different initiatives that try and do that, prepared by the hearing voices movement, you know, prepared by individuals within the hearing voices movement. So there's lots of help, help groups, there's um, different initiatives that might um, offer um, support and advice, helplines, um, different things. There's a bunch of professionals, or quite a few professionals involved in this movement too, but it's, um, the, it's the professionals' task in this movement to try and be very much guided by and and um, yeah very much guided by by what voice hearers say they find helpful rather than professionals telling voice hearers what they should find helpful so it's a very strong shift of power dynamics that should be taking place and that's quite a journey for 
profession that's involved in particular. It certainly has been for me. I'm not saying I've got there yet in any way, shape or form. It's something that I need to continually try and work on to try and not let my instinct for wanting to have the power and know it all take over. And for those that are interested, there is a, a website called intervoiceonline.org, which um, is functions as a kind of um, yeah, as a kind of umbrella organization website. Um, the Intervoice is the organization that functions as an umbrella organization for this movement, um, and there's both professionals and voice theorists um, involved in in the this organization and that's got lots of lots and lots of information about activities that the movement gets involved in there's a word hearing voices uh, congress coming up the 10th in den haag and the netherlands in september of this year for example um yeah there is um lots and lots of different training uh companies that train uh, people in this approach um can be made available um via this website um there's over in over 30 countries, we've got initiatives. Um, in the UK alone, we've got this um, um, over 200 self-help groups um, on this topic, for example, wow. initiatives. So yeah, it's it's not a small thing, but it's something that's primarily been operating outside of the mainstream. It's only slowly getting into the mainstream in recent years. There's a few pilot projects where it's getting into mainstream mental health services. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'll link to the website you mentioned and anything else you feel is relevant in the comments below on whatever platform people are, are listening to this on. Um, thank you very much, Joachim, for coming on and talking about this. Pleasure. Great, thank you. We might have you back in the future if people have any questions they feel I missed. You can let me know and we'll do another one, hopefully, if you're up for that. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.